The Startup to Scale-Up Game Plan is brought to you by Alpina Search, Europe's premier talent search firm, dedicated to helping technology startups and scale-ups recruit high-impact executives. Now over to your host, Gary Riemann. I'm delighted to welcome uh, Nicola Merkšić to the Startup to Scale-Up Game Plan. And I've been practicing the pronunciation of... Uh, of Nicola's name there, but sure, I managed to um, uh, slightly... I think it was a very good attempt. Slightly all right, thank you. Um, Nicola is the CEO at PolyAI, an exciting um, Cambridge University spin-out who've raised $14 million in VC funding for their automated customer service solutions. So, uh, Nicola, thank you for joining me on today's show. And thank you for having me. You're a Cambridge University spin-out, but you're based in London's tech city. That's right. It's better known for producing dozens of apps ventures and fintech startups than true deep tech AI ventures. So why did you choose to base yourselves in central London? That's a good question. I mean, I think that we just really wanted to be in a global hub. And um, I spent seven years at Cambridge before, before leaving, right? So, you know, I studied there, I worked for a startup there, we were acquired by Apple, I worked for Apple there. And like, it's a very nice place, but I think just in terms of, you know, the volumes of people going through and your contact with clients, with hires, it's good to be in London. It's a great city. Do you think it's a more attractive place in terms of hiring global talent? For sure. For sure. Cambridge is a nice little family town, but it's 100,000 people, right? So I could see, for example, myself living there in, you know, maybe 10 years time, but maybe not right now. Nice place to bring up the kids. What problems does PolyAI solve for your clients? So we are a conversational AI company. We build amazing voice assistants that deal with customer service. So if you've got large volumes of calls that may be repetitive and that can be dealt with with state-of-the-art AI, we basically create systems that take away mundane, boring work from human agents and bring you an infinite workforce that can deal with the most common problems that your customers have. And, you know, it may be in places where you can't afford to build a call center and where, you know, an increase in customer service and customer satisfaction leads to huge gains in revenue, but the math doesn't really work if you use human labor. In other places, it's really just the cost-cutting play where, you know, there are giant customer service estates where people have been offshoring for a number of years. And at this point, you know, they've looked at offshoring, they've looked at automation, nothing really worked. They tried to build chatbots. Chatbots gave them a small boon, but they spent a lot of money on the whole kind of like integration play, digitalization. And then they've got the APIs ready and the voice is the next frontier in customer service automation. And we've been doing voice for a very long time. My co-founders, the whole senior research team, it's a spin out from Steve Young's group at Cambridge. Now, Steve Young is, um, you know, a real British pioneer of, you know, first speech recognition and later on dialogue systems. In fact, Steve founded the world's first dialogue systems group in Cambridge in 2006, when no one even thought about building multi-turn systems, not like single command where you kind of like, you know, issue a command like set an alarm, but rather really have a conversation, go back and forth. And, you know, the real art there is to deal with the speech recognition noise, with uh, complex contextual understanding problems, different accents, background noise, all of that stuff. And we, we've been working on it for a long time. And, you know, now that every 
one in three homes in America has an Alexa, you know, top executives of large uh, corporations are willing to believe that a smaller, more specialized assistant could help their business save a lot of money and improve customer service. So it it helps businesses by reducing costs. It helps businesses improve the service, the customer service they're giving. What about the impact on people's lives, on society, with uh, with the jobs, the roles you're replacing? Two ways to look at it, right? One is we're mostly putting in labor where those companies can't afford to put enough labor, right? So there's always going to be a huge, huge place for humans in customer service operations. When someone's really frustrated, when you need that really high level of emotional intelligence, that's where you tend to need humans. And those are the high value parts of those jobs. And if you go to any contact center right now in the UK, for example, where close to 2% of the population works in customer service, it's insane, like the amount of work, the amount of empathy that those agents show with every call. And I'm actually quite surprised, even in the UK, where people are very polite, the amount of just negligence and arrogance when people call customer services, amazing, right? And if we can build another set of castle walls, if you think about it that way, like the, the IVR system, press one for that, two for that, is the first layer of castle walls, right? It helps you get to the right agent, maybe it gives you a piece of information before you even get to the agent and you go away. They call that deflection in customer service. But if you build a second set of castle walls where you know you want to update your address or you want to check where your order is, even though you could have probably done it online, well, an automated system that is good enough can help you deal with that. You don't really need a human to deal with it. It's not a particularly fun job for the human. If you end up waiting for a human for a very long time because the company can't afford to put enough people there, well, then having an automated agent that you can talk to straight away improves the customer's life. Now, in terms of the jobs that would be automated, you know, I think that we're always going to have the fear that quick technical innovation will take away jobs. And the truth is, it will to some extent. I think that the fears of AI advancing fast enough to automate such a chunk of jobs that we have not always been automating with just better operations and better technology is a bit exaggerated. I don't think that we're even close to the rate of acceleration there that would be needed to create such you know, wide social disturbances. But there are people who, like Elon Musk would disagree, but you know, as someone who spent years training neural networks, supplying you know, the latest deep learning technology to language understanding, I would tell you and a lot of my team that, you know, it's not really there yet. Okay. So do you think in, in a way there might even be benefits to society rather than disbenefits from solutions like yours? Completely. For the consumer, it creates a much better world where, you know, you're always going to have the customer service you need, right? And we live in a services-based society where, you know, you need more support. Comp- products being sold are more and more complex. So you need more and more support. The volume of calls to telcos, for example, for Broadband problems is increasing at a frantic pace because people are bringing in more and more devices that use Wi-Fi in their homes. And then when those devices stop working, they call the telco. And it's not really the telco's fault, but they end up taking those calls. So I think they are, these are calls that someone should pick up. And if we can have technology deal with that, it's a much better society. Does your system somehow transition the more complex calls to a human being so 
you kind of escalate from an automated response up to a, a human response at the right time. Exactly. So, so uh, as I said, I don't think we'll ever get fully out of using human agents as part of the customer service estate, right? If you think about self-checkout at Sainsbury's and other, other, other supermarkets, like there's always a human there to help you or to verify your age when, when you're buying alcohol and similar things. And it's, it's much of the same. And if you go to a really high-end uh, shop in Oxford Street, well, like it's probably not self-checkout because the items are way too expensive to risk someone just walking away with one or, you know, really answering a question about an item might lead to the purchase and you can't afford not to answer the question. Let's focus on the, the way your business has been growing since you spun out from Cambridge University. What have been the biggest challenges you've faced as, as a CEO since that spin out? My background is machine learning research and you know working at a startup that got acquired by Apple as, as the first employee. So I've never really done a lot of things that are now part of my daily job before, right? At the moment, my role looks a bit like, you know, a CRO, sales leader, overseeing a bit of product, creating a lot of good interfaces inside the company, growing it, growing it smartly, not wasting resources. I mean, there are a lot of challenges. We could talk about it all, right? I found it to be an incredibly interesting thing, right? But I think that some of the major challenges have been just you know, deciding where to deploy these systems. When we started, we weren't sure that it's going to be customer service. We worked with a lot of large tech companies. We helped a few of them improve their virtual assistants. And at that point, we were like, you know what? We're kind of walking into an acquihire all over again. So we pivoted, raised the Series A, and decided to really build a proper, you know, revenue generating business. And really, the first two years were spent in preparing our technology to be enterprise ready. And only about a year ago, we started really engaging with clients. Since then, we've been very successful. We have closed two major hospitality groups in the UK. And, you know, it's rolling out steadily. But, you know, I don't know when you're going to air the podcast. And, uh, you know, if someone listens to it a year from now, my hope is that, you know, one out of two pubs that you call in the UK will have a PolyEye system picking up. Right. And that's exactly the kind of problem where you can't afford to pick up every call because people working there are busy. And people call to book a table usually at times when they are busiest. So it's either <laughs> selling another pint yeah. or not picking up the phone. The value there is huge, but it doesn't make sense to have a designated phone concierge at every pub or even to have a call center for different ones. It's just the peaks and throats of the demand are such that a stationary call center would not be the right thing to, to deploy. And then, you know, we're working with large telcos, with a large bank, a few other companies, and those are all things that are slowly kind of like scaling up. And the nature of deploying machine learning is that there's usually a long trial phase before you're able to roll out across the whole state. So we're in different stages with different companies right now. And how are you finding the difference between doing business in the States versus doing business in the UK and Europe? That is such a good question. We just had our first sales director in the US join. He's based in, in Denver, in Colorado. We'll have a few more people join that office. where We now have a subsidiary in the US. Our Series A investors are American as well. I spend a lot of time there. I used to before the pandemic, <laughs> that is. And I like doing business there. I think people are a lot faster, more confident when working with startups. They like to try things out. They take more risk. 
I think, and this is auto shamanism here, but as Europeans, we're we're not that rambunctious when it comes to trying out new things, taking risks, especially when you're selling to large enterprises. There's a lot of risk-averse attitude. Sure. Yeah, the Americans like their uh, their new shiny toys and they like to experiment and and, uh, innovate. And it's just a much bigger market, right? So I think, you know, maybe it's not just us here that are not, you know, rambunctious enough. It's also that everything's larger there, the budgets are bigger, they get to experiment a lot more. As you pointed out a few moments ago, you're a first-time CEO, you've got a technical background. What support and mentoring are you getting from your investors or from your network? I think that my board has been incredible at just kind of like telling me what's important at different stages of our growth, you know, when to focus on product and not worry about, I don't know, commercial traction and when to really be aggressive about revving that commercial engine. In terms of other people who have given me advice, our supervisor, Steve Young, is an accomplished serial entrepreneur. He sold three companies, one to Google, one to Microsoft, and one to Apple. So in the early stages, he's he's been tremendously helpful. Chris Mears is another person who helped me a lot and just you know showed me where the goalposts are in the early days. He's a venture partner at Entrepreneur First. And yeah, I think that those mentors can make all the difference in the early days. But at the end of the day, you know what you want to achieve and you just need to figure it out. I think that's the joy of being a first-time founder. And you get to learn a lot. And if you're willing to push yourself through that growth, well, it's hugely rewarding. And how difficult has it been for you to build a senior team that complements you in terms of skills and experience? Oh, it's it's a hard, hard thing to do. I think that finding the right people that you know you want to spend—they're they're like your senior team—they're almost like your co-founders, right? And I think that you know, first and foremost, my like two co-founders have been incredible, right? And they're holding the whole kind of like technical org, and I don't have to worry about that. And I think the challenges of managing I mean, a fast-growing technical org on both the engineering and the machine learning side is, 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 is very difficult. So I think my, my co-founder, Sean, has done a tremendous job at that. And then, you know, I brought on a chief operating officer about a year and a half ago. His name is Yan Zhang. He was a serial entrepreneur in China. He's Chinese-American. And when he joined, I think that, um, you know, I, it's really someone who helped me with... Um, the commercial side thinking through strategy. And I mean, I could, I could laud praises, but, you know, other roles that, are, that have been hard to hire for, but we managed in the end are, for example, a VP of product, where simply in, in Europe compared to the US, you have way fewer people who've done serious product work. Because at the end of the day, here, we're very good at technology. We're okay at sales. But everything truly major in terms of like the history of tech companies has been built in America, right? And, you know, you walk down the street in Palo Alto and you find a VP of product and a VP of sales. And it's not that easy here, right? So I think that over time, I've become much more cautious and pedantic when hiring and looking at some very basic things, you know, things like staying power are really, really important. And it just sounds like a very vanilla obvious statement when when you say it but like it's something that i'd previously ignored and i think that you know that that's been something that's a mistake that i won't repeat um but you know it's um 
it's really hard because you have to make bets about who the best person for you know one side of the org will be at a time when you're not really sure what the shape of that org will have to be in six months' time. So you just have to experiment really at some point. You hired your COO really early in the evolution of the company. I'm fascinated by that. What was the thinking behind hiring a COO? I didn't go out to hire a CEO, right? I'm, I've just always been a sucker for incredible talent, right? And the end joined us first off as an entrepreneur in residence for a solid, I think, four months. And then at the end, we were like, all right, like, what are we going to call you <laughs> <laughs> as you join full time? And that's basically how it happened. And, you know, right now he looks at things like marketing, customer success, ops, legal, and yeah, it's... Roles mean various things at different companies, right? Especially early on. And let's talk about the future for a few moments. What are your aspirations? How do you see the company changing over the next three to four years? Look, I want us to take all the customer service calls in the world, all that we can. And, you know, our goals are set around that number growing furiously over the next few years. Initially, it's going to be through large deals with companies that need a lot of customer service automation. Later on, it will be through channel partnerships with um, you know, large SIs and other companies looking to deploy these things as the ecosystem gets more and more mature. The truth is you get a lot of noise around conversational AI right now. Gartner will tell you that there are 1,500 companies doing conversational AI. The truth is a lot of them are just handcrafting chatbots that are glorified smartphone apps that live in a chat screen. And they've delivered to an extent for, you know, when you look across all customer service, you'll see that it went from 10 to 15%. So 15% of all customer service interactions go through chat. 60% go through voice. Voice is the price, the main price. And a call center agent that picks up a phone can only speak to one customer at a time. With chat, you can do four people at the same time. So the ROI is a lot better on automating voice conversations. And like, it's what we've done our whole lives. It's, you know, we've been preparing for it our whole lives. And we know how to build this, these things faster, how to make them better, and how to, the, you know, even make them less expensive than any of the competition. And this is an area which has been stagnant for a very long time. You look at in the incumbents, companies like Nuance, IPsoft, Interactions. They're dinosaurs. Their valuations have flatlined for years, right? And the best that the world has seen, you know, as a whole when it comes to voice automation is, in a few words, tell me what your call is about. And you say something, but really what's happening behind the scenes is instead of pressing one, two, or three, the system chooses whether you've said one, two, or three. And that can even be more frustrating when it doesn't work well. And that can cause huge problems for a call center. But it doesn't really make a dent in the whole automation play. And these things should be automated. Like people shouldn't sit in a call center and pick up the same call over and over again every day, all day. That's just sapping and wasting human creativity. And we can talk about the economic ramifications of that. But I really, really believe in the kind of like, you know, lost opportunities that, you know, a lot of humanity doing that is experiencing. As a business, how many languages is your solution currently live in? It's only live in English right now, but it's something that we've, uh, the name of the company is Poly AI, is because the system scales across languages and across domains, right? It's a polymath and a polyglot. I could show you demos in about 14 languages right now, 
but we don't have a live client using anything other than English so far, which is a shame, but it's about pursuing uh, British and American markets that, and that's kind of like holding us back from unleashing that, that side of the business. Yeah, I was going to ask, and you may not yet have the data, I guess, I was going to ask if you saw any cultural differences in the way a solution like PolyAI might be adopted in, say, Japan or China or South Korea uh, versus um, UK and the US? One of the best proxies is just how many smart speakers have been sold in a market so far. So when you look at Europe, Britain is ahead of any other market, including, uh, including Ireland as well, because it has to do with language. But it's behind America where the adoption curve is ahead because, well, I mean, Amazon and Google have tried a lot harder. In Asia, countries like Korea have their own smart speaker providers, quite a few of them, right? And uh, the same is true in China, same is true in Japan. So I think in terms of adoption and the fluency in using these kinds of systems, I think that the Far East is ahead of Europe. And in terms of some integrations and people's habits when it comes to relying on technology, I think that there's a lot to learn from WeChat, which has become you know, an agglomerated service where you do payments, you can do customer service with like a lot of trust that the counterparty is really who they say they are, which is not something that we really have in the West yet. So yeah, I think that culturally, just between the UK and the US, uh, Americans are a lot more confident when speaking to these systems. And I think it's uh, you know, just because they, they, they actually have them in their homes much more frequently. They also work better for Americans than for Brits, because if you think about dialects, I mean, I'm not going to say that there are probably like three major dialects in the US, but there are at least 60 in the UK. So <laughs> when you, you know, when you take a Geordie accent and then you take someone from Glasgow and then, I don't know, you go, you go to Cardiff and you go to Cornwall, it's, it's fun, right? Our systems are very good at dealing with British speakers because we're a British company and we focus on a lot of our client base is still British, but it's, it's a lot harder than dealing with, you know, the American market where the variance is just a lot lower. I'm just thinking also about healthcare with COVID presumably driving a lot of traffic to all sorts of healthcare organizations. Are you able to provide services? Are you right now live deploying services to help some healthcare providers deal with inbound COVID-related queries? You're killing me here. No, we're not. And it's something that we've been interested in for a, for a long time, but we've just not yet found the right channel partner to bring this to healthcare providers. And the unit economics of selling to, you know, individual GP surgeries in the UK or to, you know, individual hospitals in the US, the math doesn't work. So it's something that that we do want to figure out, but it's not it's not a core focus right now. Right now, we're working in hospitality, in telco, banking, and with utility companies. Well, Nicola, Poly AI is clearly going to be another uh, big Cambridge success story. I'm looking forward to hearing how you're doing on the global stage in multiple languages. Thank you so much for joining me on today's show. Thank you for having me. This episode of the Startup to Scale Up Game Plan was brought to you by Alpina Search. Head over to www.alpinasearch.com for advice on scaling your technology startup and recruiting high-impact senior talent.